Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. <laughs> Gone with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Sometimes we yeah. did our part. I would go in and clap to some of these things. <laughs> <laughs> so you should have had a clapping credit. You should have. <laughs> Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. I'm sorry, Tammy is not with us this week. Why? Well, you probably know the answer. I've got an interview. I'm going to talk with Dana Hartwick. Does the name ring a bell? Well, maybe the name doesn't ring a bell, but her music certainly will. Dana was a child prodigy flute and piccolo player in Detroit, Michigan. Motown. Starting at the age of 15, she was the flutist and piccoloist, that's how you say it, on every Motown hit that had a flute. She's had multiple number one hits. You've heard her play more times than you think you can count, but today may very well be the first time you've heard her name, and it'll be the first time you hear her voice. Dana and I spoke for well over an hour about her life at Motown, then her work with Stax, then as a touring musician with some of the biggest Broadway traveling companies ever assembled. She's fascinating, and for the next two shows, you get to meet her. That's this hour. That little girl from Motown, Dana Hartwick. On the phone with me, Dana Hartwick, the flutist, flautist? Is it flutist or flautist? Which one is it, Dana? For me, it's flutist. I think if you're maybe French or uh, (laughs) that's like onion. And uh, anyway, it's uh, an affectation. Just call it flautist. Let's just go with flautist. Well, you're also a piccolo player. What is that, a piccolist? Uh, well, I know I think it's Pigaloist, but I don't know. I've never even been asked that question. Well, I was going to say, I was trying but to make I it... actually did the majority of Piccolo work at Motown. Yeah, I'm telling you, the one that people know you by or know you from is Rockin' Robin by Michael Jackson. That's you doing the back part, is it not? Yeah, and that was probably one of the first. I even had forgotten about it till I heard about that one now. Just, you know, a few years ago in a in a record store. Oh man, and that's I mean that's that's not even your piece de resistance. But look, I want to do an interview with you. Ask what things were like at Motown. Get your your uh, life story uh, as much as I can in this show and maybe another one. So I have a slew of questions. Ready? Okay. You played your first song with Motown. At 15 years old, 1965, if I remember yours and my previous conversation. Number one, what was the song? What did you play? Uh, well, it was Reach Out, and I had no idea anything about Motown. 
because uh, what happened was the night before, uh, I had been playing in a park band. And uh, actually, even back in junior high school, I was subbing with the Detroit Symphony. So I was, uh, I got to be pretty well known for, uh, I, I was classically t- trained initially. Yes. So um, then in the summers is when the park bands played. And um, on that specific day, the president of the Musicians Union came down uh, to where I was playing and afterwards said, uh, you wanted it at Motown the next day. Well, how about that? So I thought, is that the, the Motown? Because it really wasn't well known <laughs> then, but we heard of it. What, 1965? Motown wasn't well known? Well, not maybe not by uh, well, you. Well, not to me. I mean, oh. here I was 15, and I didn't. Uh, I was well. I was working since very young, so like I said, I was classically trained, so I didn't know about a lot of these things. I, I think I heard them on the radio, but I didn't know anything about them. Well, do me a favor. I I I would be remiss if I didn't have you, in some way, connect the dots. You had to have been a musical prodigy playing with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra at 13 and Motown at 15. Connect those dots for me. How did it happen? Um, let's see. As I don't know uh, with the De- as far as the Detroit Symphony. I began at 7, and uh, by the time I was 9, I was playing uh, community symphonies, and then my teacher knew of how I played uh, Clem Barone. Mm-hmm. And um, so that particular day, there was a, well, it was a children's concert. But that particular day, um, there was a very uh, well-known piece being played, uh, Tchaikovsky's Fourth. And it had a wild, crazy piccolo part in the fourth movement. And uh, as we were on stage, my, my teacher was next to me. I mean, uh, but just before that solo came up, he walked off stage. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> Leaving it to me. Actually, it was perfect, but I was shocked. I mean, and uh, a couple of years after that, I mean, I subbed for, I mean, I uh, auditioned for the symphony. But at that time, it was so different. They would not allow a full-time player woman to uh, be in the wind and brass section. So sexism. very unfair. And things have uh, gone on through the years. But I went through a lot of that with uh, a lot of different, not Motown, but a lot of different, you know. How about that? related a story to me earlier that's just adorable it's great at 15 years old when you were playing for Motown you had hurt your knee tell me how you got in the studio well yeah um after that night at the park band um uh my dad had to drive me naturally I couldn't drive yet uh, to the um session and I had dislocated my knee so I was in a uh total cast in one leg and three of the funk brothers uh, carried me in it was Joe Messina uh, also who used to play with my dad my dad was a great uh, guitarist also mm-hmm. 
And Robert White and James Jamerson. James Jamerson. Do you remember anything about James Jamerson? He's the name that always comes to my mind when I hear Funk Brothers. What do you remember oh, yeah. about him? Well, I did many sessions with him, and uh, <laughs> he used to play and be constantly smoking. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that something to remember? But no, he was great. Oh, my God. Uh, and, I mean, to this day, everybody just idolizes him. Yeah, well, he is the man who's been to the top of the charts more than any other human being. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So tell me about Hitsville, USA. I mean, what, what, what was the setup? What was the studio like? Because it's just a house in a neighborhood, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and uh, now it's a part of a big expansion that's going to be the entire block. Uh, and now they already have, well, I was just down there this last Friday, and I spoke for three of the tours. But I also saw uh, what they've done so far. And they have like three more houses. Uh, but the main uh, Hitsville, first of all, it's not large, but it looks exactly the same on the outside as it did then. And uh, as far as inside, that's where they do the tours now. Mm-hmm. But they still have the original Studio A, which the Funk Brothers played in, and the three um, rooms on the side, closed in rooms, where I used to play with them. Uh, there was like uh, winds or maybe just me or uh, <laughs> brass in another one. And it might be a few strings if they used a few strings prior to the Detroit Symphony strings. Uh, so it, the sound would not bleed uh, from one instrument to another. And sometimes we just did overdubbing too, because it was a really very small. Uh, and then if occasionally uh, there would be maybe like three singers Maybe they did it before. Maybe they, I don't think they did it after, but they might have done it with the Funk Brothers prior. It was always different. But very often there were singers would be actually um, standing in the control room and singing. Oh, so as, the musicians. As after, sometimes we yeah. did our part. I would go in and clap to some of these things. <laughs> <laughs> so you should have had a clapping credit. You should have. Yeah. But... <laughs> Now, now you say that sometimes there were overdubs, sometimes there were not. I had heard, read somewhere, that the majority of the recording at Motown was sort of one, two, three, go. Songs were created very quickly with very little overdub. Is that correct? Am I, did I read that right? Uh, yeah, the overdubbing actually didn't, uh, I don't think, start till later, but that was prior, I mean mainly because the room was so small but when they had bigger groups or sometimes for like what's going on which we were had our 50th year this past friday mm-hmm. that was mostly done at um studio b which was golden world that's what they call but, it um <laughs> yeah yeah golden yeah. world actually on the side of the building that's what it was called golden world so it was probably called that before a motown bought it that's well. just my guess well, if you give it the name that, that you want to create, they certainly did. Tell me about Golden World and how Reverb was created because it's brilliant. Go ahead. Well, the Reverb, that was at Studio A. Oh, Studio A, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, that was the small, small of it. Actually, it was, uh, they made a hole in the ceiling. <laughs> <Ta-da>! uh, and um, <laughs> I never was, I was aware of it. But I actually was not involved with it, so 
So I don't know if they did clapping there or what. They used eight tracks at the time, and it's amazing the sounds they got with what little they had to work with. Right. Later on, it became, you know, um, 16 track and that, but I mean, that was kind of much later. So, um, yeah, it was very, very different. They worked very hard and got, it's amazing how things turned out with the, the little they had to work with. And it's it, it it's so much more amazing because, and I'm, I'm going to compliment you through this, when you're dealing with straight to tape, straight to single you have to be that good a musician you just simply don't have the space to make mistakes i mean the funk brothers and and blatantly you as well were just stunning musicians they had to be well it was all sight reading and i was used to sight reading in fact even after that anything i did that's kind of why I, i played in certain places because i could just look at the music and play it right off now, we didn't always do it in one or two takes because uh, sometimes we would give our ideas, a little I- different ideas, to add to what we were reading. have a chart or was there ever a time they said hey look we need 16 bars of flute here and you just played what came out of your brain or was there always a chart late or not there always was for there me. always was now uh there was a fella named eli fontaine who um he did the opening for what's going on and he did Things for reunited sound, like for Isaac Hayes, too, where um, he did this fantastic jazz opening or solo, and he could not read a note of music. <laughs> wow. How yeah. about that? Yeah. So I, I was going to ask you about that. when The first time you and I spoke, um, the first thing I did when we were done is when I got my copy. I have the vinyl copy of what's going on. And mm-hmm. you're listed there, and at the beginning, I, I kind of thought that was a saxophone. But when I talked to you, I thought, well, I think that's, I think that's her. But no, that was actually no, him no, playing that, saxophone. No, no, that is Eli. Yeah, yeah. But you get a credit in Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On." Oh yeah, I'm playing with the strings, and then there's one section in there which was a jazz section, and for years I would never listen to it because I didn't, I wasn't real secure with it. And uh, finally, like, like I said later, I, when I got on tour, the, the fellow that I knew from here, my part, partner in the show, mm-hmm. said, you know, you got to listen to that. He said, it's really good. <laughs> so have you? Have you? I have, but I mean, not recently. I did then when he told me. Did you like but it? that was 20 years ago. <laughs> did you like when it? When I was on tour. That was a long 10-year tour, too. Yeah, well, hey, I have questions about your life after Motown when we're done here mm-hmm. because it's equally as interesting. So how much, these, these are the questions I need to ask people that I interview. I call them the uncomfortable questions. How much money did you make? Well, it was, um, it started out uh, 
sometimes like four four cuts uh, for every three hours, and we got paid per three hours, and we couldn't do more than four cuts, and later on uh, it was three, and it was $65. For the song or for the entire time? No, the entire three hours. Oh, was that union scale? I don't think they had any, I don't think they uh, recorded before Motown. So I don't even know if there was a scale set. I do know one thing, though. Somehow when the uh, Detroit Symphony got set up with using their strings, they had a deal where um, they played three sessions and got one free. (laughs) Totally unfair for us. Wait, yes, but it sounds like one of those cardboard cards you get at the ice cream shop. You buy three, you get a fourth one free. I know, I know. Yeah. take our first break and give our affiliates a chance to talk to their listeners. We'll be back in a minute to continue speaking with Dana Hartwick, the flute and piccolo you hear in your favorite Motown songs, right here on Rock School. going to list some songs you tell me what you remember of them and i know you have a lot to say about this first one here tears of a clown smoky robinson and the miracles what do you know um well naturally i'm playing piccolo on that and uh there were three of us uh woodwinds it was myself uh charlie serard on bassoon and um uh, let's see, Obo was um, Ronald Oldmark. And he played other sessions uh, with Motown, with me. But Charlie Savard, that was the only uh, 
time they actually used a bassoon. So that he and he had never recorded himself before. He would probably recorded with a DSL, but anyway, he wanted to be um, just perfect at what he was doing. So uh, we had headphones on, and um, he would. Uh, we'd start into the first take or the second take, and sometimes they would stop and say, "Oh, do this and do that," or "We need this." But uh, instead of, I mean, also he, uh, Charlie, would take his headphones off and talk into the mic. Oh no, leave them on and not realize that when he was talking into the microphone, it was going into the recordings. Yeah. <laughs> and because yeah. of that, it kind of turned out comical because we wound up doing 35 takes. Wow. I will tell you, recording in a studio is a much different animal than playing live. I can understand him being mm-hmm. a little shook by it. You start to get in yeah. your own head. Then later, when I was on tour, uh, the fellow that was uh, playing next to me, uh, I had actually, well, he was from Detroit, so I actually kind of got him on tour. Not that one. He went out other stuff, too. But he said, oh, you're not going to be happy about this one. And he showed me a magazine called Wind Player. And uh, in it is an article uh, with Tom, about Tom Horn, who I did not know. But down south, I guess he was a doubler. But the first... What, um, what's a doubler? Tell us what a doubler is. Uh, he played... Well, I think his main instrument was sax and clarinet and then flute. Maybe piccolo, but anyway, uh, he, in the first um, paragraph, he said his claim to fame was playing the piccolo part in Tears of a Clown. No, you didn't. No, you <laughs> didn't, Tom. But Tom. I had no contact with him. I didn't even know who he was. But I did write out in detail uh, a letter and sent it to a win player. And they sent me a response and said, well, we'll print it if there's any truth to it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Call, call Motown. There's your proof. We're done. Did they print it? Uh, so, anyway, anyway, um, well, I didn't think of that. <laughs> but, oh, <laughs> it's on tour. Yeah, I understand. I understand. But so you never, they never printed a retraction or anything? No, but I sent uh. another letter and never heard from them. Well... I can tell you, it's 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 hard to get any media to admit they were wrong. You really have to prove it straight away. Did you work ever with the Four Tops? How about Bernadette? Oh, a lot. A lot. Yeah. I mean, Bernadette, uh, um, many things. Standing in the Shadows of Love, I, I think that was a Four Tops. Reflections, yes. uh, that was used uh, as the opener for China Beach for a year, and we didn't get paid for it. <laughs> you, you have a lot of not getting paid stories yeah, here, Dana. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's why so many of the... Uh, even the Funk Brothers and that, they wound up penniless. Oh, isn't and, uh, that it's sad? it's a shame. I mean, some of the singers got 
Jip too, but uh, we really, we well, especially me, because I was one of the youngest ones there too. Yeah, well, you probably never figured into anything being 15. You, What were you no. going to do? What were you going to do? No, and that they didn't even have written contracts prior to that. That that was just beginning then. How about that? And later on, they uh, used Hitsville for everything for a while. But then they acquired another building uh, called the Donovan Building. Well, now the freeway was going through. This was some years ago. So they imploded it. And all these uh, records, just, I mean, not vinyl records. Yeah. Um, written records right. were flying in the air and I guess a lot of information was found but we didn't know about it and it didn't know yeah, we oh, no, we've, we've talked about we've talked about that very thing on the show the destruction of, of early records and such and that was one of the things we talked about just, yeah. just blew it up just blew it up time for our second break. We'll be back in one minute to continue our discussion with Dana Hartwick on Rock School. the electric flute didn't you yeah not the <laughs> microphone for it but and uh, actually Motown uh, gave me a flute that had this microphone in it but what happened was I worked with um, I used to do a lot of teaching and I came across this one unit called a maestro unit mm-hmm. and so I hooked up the electric flute to this maestro unit which had a lot of buttons on it kind of like an organ or something uh and i actually donated that and the electric flute to the motown museum which had it up at in dearborn the uh, greenfield village for a year Excellent. um it uh well it could sound a lot of different ways but this one particular one is the interlude for that's what heartaches are made of and Marlette. you would not even know it was a flute. It was all kinds of, ah, ah, because <laughs> I had all these buttons pushed. And um, Joe Messina worked with me with the wah-wah pedal that made those sounds. Not the sounds of the maestro unit, but the yeah. sounds of the, you know, going back and forth. Yeah. So you and, used a, a, a wah-wah. You were the Jimi Hendrix of the flute players. 
<laughs> he used the wah wah pedal though. Oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. You you are you are the Jimi Hendrix of. <laughs> All right, dear. I'm gonna and we're we're gonna play that tune. Believe me, you gotta. Okay, and, go ahead. Go ahead. And go the ahead. electric flute was used uh, for another thing too. Uh, actually, the tops um, did walk away Renee, and um, I did two overdubs. So not with them, uh, but it turned out I just found some of this out a few years late, uh, ago. Mm-hmm. But Walkaway Renee did the top, and I listened to it, and they used the electric flute. It was just a straight electric flute. It wasn't with the wah-wah pedal or anything. Yeah. But it wasn't until years later that I heard this left bank, uh, the oh. group, the left bank. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I'm listening to it. There's an alto flute uh, interlude. And I hear this one little blurb. And I thought, that sounds like me. But when I heard that, I thought, oh, my goodness, that's it. They're using that one. <laughs> and you... they never even recorded for Motown, but they must have gotten that because they had, you know, the rights through the uh, tops or something like that. Well, see, there you go. And you don't get paid from them either. I'm going to guess. Oh, no. I'm going to oh, no. guess. already you're listed on the what's going on LP so anything anytime one of those gets used you receive royalties what about your work with the Supremes with Smokey Robinson well, first of all, no there were no royalties then huh it's only it's only if uh, now it would in the past few years if it happens to be in a movie or something like that so let's but say Gordy uh, Gordy did not allow our names on any of the other albums and he really, really gypped us. I have, I and no one else has any idea why our names were left off either. Probably to maximize profits. I'm gonna yeah, guess. I'm yeah. gonna guess. But let's say Michael Jackson's Rock and Robin gets picked up in this massive new Pixar hit. You'll receive nothing. No, probably not. Just wow. like uh, I recorded uh, Kung Fu Fighting, <laughs> and my name that my name doesn't show up. That was a great one. A lot of piccolo. I yeah. mean, they had Hallmark cards. They're still doing uh, uh, new movies and old movies and everything. And uh, for some reason, I no matter how I bring it up or who I bring it up to, I get nowhere. No kidding. You're, you had to have told me that. I, I, you couldn't have. I, I couldn't have forgotten Kung Fu Fighting. Because yeah. surely, Dana, not everyone was Kung Fu Fighting. You you, really? men, you mentioned Barry Gordy. Did you meet him? What were your impressions of him? Uh, well, I met him, and I've seen him recently. Well, not real recently, but at um, 
they had a reunion, 50th reunion. Actually, they had another one where they honored the women of Motown. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, I was one of them and didn't know it ahead of time. Oh. And I was awarded by uh, Billy D. Williams. And I've got a nice uh, he, I, nice picture of it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Oh, 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 oh. oh, oh, oh. Everybody was kung fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they fought with the story of a song and and it's entirely possible many in the audience don't even know the song what about bobby taylor's does your mother know about me yeah uh, one christmas uh they would give us uh christmas gifts mm-hmm. i don't know if everybody got them but anyway um so i went down uh to my boss to get this and at the same time bobby taylor was just probably about to record and so he was just meeting him and uh then i got my gift and i left and uh then uh, a few couple of days later i got a phone call well it was from bobby and i'm thinking i didn't give him my number <laughs> hank must have my boss yeah. so anyway he's just talking to me nicely and he said well i'm i'm getting uh this record together and i'm going to have you on the session and uh he was very nice, and then he called me a couple other times after that. And so anyway, he said, "Well, we've got it set. So um, come into the session tomorrow." And so I'm sitting there with my headphones on, and I'm hearing, uh, "Does your mama know about me? Does she know what I am? Does she give a care about me? Uh-oh. And does she accept me as a man? Uh-oh. What about your dad? Uh-oh. Because I said to my mom, well, what should I do?'" He said, well, that's fine. Just don't tell your dad. So yeah. anyway, I ran into the control room and I said, Bobby, what'd you do? <laughs> so that was kind of cute. You know, as a father, I can tell you, it's not that my daughter's dating any person in particular. It's that it's a boy. And I hate yeah. him. I hate him because of that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't even dating. I mean, it was a, <laughs> the whole thing was... Uh, kind of a surprise but he probably uh, has his plans. Yeah, Dana. It was, it was cute. Dana, he had his eye on you. Now come on. <laughs> come on. Hey, speaking of Christmas, you say this occurred at Christmas. Well, there's Motown Christmas albums. I mean, did you play on them? Oh yeah. And yeah. they were I think earlier before I, I uh started recording there, I think they put some out, but they aren't very often played. But one summer we did a uh, number of albums, and uh, that's when we did them, during the summer. What's a... And my, my favorite one yeah. is called uh, What Christmas Means to Me, Stevie Wonder. Oh, I know it. Oh, I know it up, yeah. down, through, under. I know yep, it completely. My, now, wait a minute. my favorite. You said you recorded Christmas albums in the summer, like July, August? 
Yeah, right. Yeah. Did anybody have any Christmas spirit, or did they put up lights or something? Oh, no, no, no. No? <laughs> but but during breaks, we would go out on the front lawn and uh, play Frisbee. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a big <laughs> thing. It's a Frisbee's a big thing in Detroit right around Christmas time, yeah. Now, <laughs> I... <laughs> no, this was in the summer, remember. That's true, but, you know, yeah, Christmas. Yeah. So We've run out of time, I'm sorry to say, but don't worry. Dana Hartwick will be with us next week to finish up her interview and tell us what happens when Motown ends. That's all for this week. Class is dismissed. Mm-hmm.